We're going to continue in our study, uh, the glory of a true church. Before we begin, I want to read from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, just to use or allow the Word of God to situate in our minds this picture of the church as it is in Scripture, and uh, we'll not expound this text Later we will come back to it and and draw some questions from it. Acts chapter 2 verses 41 and 42. And also if you have a copy of the the book there by Keats, you can have that ready as well. Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, So those who received His word were baptized... And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now just to recap, if you've got your book there in front of you, we began last week looking at the first, I don't know if you would call it a chapter, I guess it would be a chapter, the first primary heading, uh, under the words, uh, concerning a true and orderly gospel church. And we started by noting that, very simply, that there are true and orderly gospel churches. And there are false churches, and in the middle there are churches that we would say are disorderly, but they are still true churches. And by disorderly, we ought not to necessarily think of a group of kids that we would say they were disorderly, rambunctious, as if there's clear and obvious visible distractions or something. Uh, in, in these times, they would consider a church dis, uh, disorderly or disordered if it was without a pastor or elders. Um, that was considered disorderly. Something needs to be put back into order. And we have to understand that, that uh, a church can be disorderly or out of order and still be a true church. Uh, these Our Baptist forefathers were very clear in pointing out that their Paedo-Baptist brothers, churches from which they were separating, they, were, they, they wanted to make it very clear, those churches are still churches. They believe differently than us. They practice differently than us. That doesn't make them a false church. That doesn't make them unbelievers. That doesn't make them heretics. There are churches that are still true churches that we might consider disorderly. And as we go through 1 Corinthians, uh, if, if Paul would consider that a true church, then we, uh, we ought to uh, be very gentle in our treatment and our speaking of churches that, that may or may not uh, operate in the way that we do or see things the way that we see them. But there are true and orderly gospel churches, and our, our goal should always be to, to have and to maintain a true and orderly gospel church. And that was what Keach was after in his day. And so he started into that main point by saying, before there can be an orderly discipline among a Christian assembly, they must be constituted into a church state in an orderly and regular manner according to the institution of Christ and His gospel. And we took that phrase, church state, based on the definition that's given there, and we, we defined it this way. This is what we're aiming after. A group of people who have established themselves as a particular congregation for the purpose of worshiping God 
and receiving religious instruction and who have done so following the proper procedure or arrangement. And then Keach went on to list eight things which need to be present or should be present in a true church. Now I want to walk back through those briefly and and as we state each one, I'm going to try to begin to build a bridge into what's going to be our subject for this evening. So he would say that they, they would have to be a congregation of godly Christians. So they, it must be made up of people who display personal piety. Now think. If there must be godly Christians, if there must be personal piety, there has to be a way to gauge that. There has to be some standard agreed upon that they can say, this is godly, this is ungodly. There would have to be a way to confirm this piety in other people as they begin to make up the congregation. Uh, There would have to be a way for me to have that piety affirmed in myself by others. You see, we can throw out this idea, well, they must be godly Christians. But implied in that are many different things. And and as we begin to think through that, we, we, we see how structures and order begin to form in establishing such a congregation. Those who make up this church should be baptized upon the profession of their faith. Well, that would be a, a public profession. That means there has to be someone to hear that profession. There has to be someone to evaluate that profession biblically. And there also has to be somebody to administer baptism. See, this, all of this is sort of baggage that comes along with each of these ideas. Uh, this group comes together as a stated assembly, a particular group of people gathered for the particular purpose of these things that we're talking about. Well, that necessitates a plan. Hey, we're, we're going to get together at this time and we're going to do these things. There has to be some sort of an announcement and agreement to act according to these uh, matters. There, there has to be some order. This, this sort of thing doesn't just happen. Um, as as we, we've joked about recently, going to the, the local animal auction, and before they begin, somebody says, do you, do you want to say the Pledge of Allegiance? Like, how, how do we even start this thing? Where do we begin? There, there was no order. Well, there has to be somebody who's in charge, somebody planning things for this to happen. They must be, uh, these people must by mutual agreement and consent give themselves up to the Lord and to one another according to the will of God. Well, the the concept of mutuality requires two or more parties to be able to agree with one another. I have to hear what you say and you have to hear what I say and then we have to mutually agree on that. I have to know what you believe and you have to know what I believe and then we can mutually uh, come to that agreement on what these things mean. They must ordinarily meet together in one place for the public service and worship of God. Well, there has to be agreement on the time and place. The Word of God is to be duly administered, which means somebody has to minister the Word. Someone has to receive the ministry of the Word. The sacraments are to be administered according to Christ's institution. Well, there has to be an agreement on what Christ's institution is and someone to minister the sacraments and those who receive the sacraments And I think clearly the the assumption in this is that those who have agreed to assemble is the same one, this is the same group that will confirm one another's piety. 
who will give themselves up to one another. We, we wouldn't all get together and agree that we're going to have a meeting and then think that another group of people is going to be there to confirm our piety. We would say, no, we are the group that's going to agree on this and then we will meet together and we will begin to affirm these things. That would be that same group that's going to hear the word and receive the sacraments together. All of this requires something. And I would say that all of what he has said requires a church covenant and what we tend to call church membership. Membership and covenant go together. There has to be a, a public recognition of those who make up the group. But before that, there has to be the public recognition of what it means to be in this group. What are our doctrinal standards? What are the privileges and liabilities of being a part of this group? What are the rules that we're going to use to keep one another accountable to all of these standards that we're agreeing on? There has to be a commitment to meeting together, and then you'd have to have the public and voluntary consent of each individual to submit to the agreed-upon standards. Again, all of this requires what we call church membership and a church covenant. I was talking with a brother recently, and they're um, in this sort of limbo stage of we got a group meeting but have we planted a church where are we and I was trying to encourage him and he would say well uh, we're we're he kept using the the plural pronoun we well we're doing this and we're doing that and I said well, well if, if there's no membership yet then who is we who are you talking about like the guy that just decided to show up who you don't know what he believes but now he's helping you make decisions about the next steps of your your, your group, well, that doesn't make any sense. I see the membership is important because you have to define the we before you begin to make steps. And then, as, we, as I said, how do I know if I want to be a part of the we if you all believe something that I don't believe? Well, I don't want to be a part of that we. And if I'm off in left field, well, you don't want me a part of your we. So there, that's why these things are, are sort of implied, assumed, and, and the old writers would say that these things all come naturally uh, in, in any time there is the establishment of a what they would call a body politic. And we'll, we'll see that later. But we know this is true in, in every area of life. Um, you, Philip comes and tells me, I, I got a new job at Samaritan's Purse. Okay, I'm assuming a lot of things about that. I, what I... What I I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean is that he started going to Samaritan's Purse and just kind of hanging out in the parking lot, like walking up and down the hallways, getting to know people, and he and then he would say, yeah, I got a job there, or they would say, yeah, he works out. I'm pretty sure that's not what he meant. Um, I also am assuming that what he doesn't mean is sometimes they go to Samaritan's Purse, but next week I think I might, if I don't feel like driving that far, I might stop at... Uh, Duncan's gun shop and I might walk around there and that'll be my job and then maybe the next week I'll go on down to Frank's tools and I'll work there um, no I'm assuming when he says I got a job that there was an agreement a meeting a covenant he signed some papers that assumed obligations by him obligations by the employer that forms this relationship that now both parties can be held accountable that's just one instance of how we do this in pretty much every area of life, it's assumed if we are going to, uh, as the Scriptures say, how can two walk together unless there be an agreement? Unless we can come together on some facts, we can't begin to walk together. 
See, and that's that was this is sort of what we might call uh, a part of the the, the natural uh, law that is built into us as communal creatures. Again, this is all they would assume these types of things. Um, but this this leads to and requires what we call church membership. Now, look at look at the uh, number three on page six. I just want to. Hopscotch for a second. We won't go very far into either of these paragraphs, but number three on page six begins before each person is admitted as a member. Then the next paragraph when admitted as members before the church, they must solemnly enter into a covenant. Now, in the first week of this study, as I was going through what what seem to be very common and, and perpetual problems prevailing in, in evangelical culture. I mentioned one of them being the devaluing of church membership and a church covenant. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, many don't see the importance or the duty of church membership as biblical. They would say, well, I don't see in the Bible anywhere where it says... You've got to become a member of a church or you have to sign a covenant. I don't see that in Scripture. Uh, many will go from church to church in their minds always looking but never really settling down anywhere. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're in a different place every, every three weeks or six months. For, for many people, it could be every four or five years. They're on to a different place, never really settling. And, and all their life, they, can, they have this long resume of all of the churches they've been to and all of the problems that they found in all of those churches, and, but, but they never settled anywhere. That's, that's an evidence. They have devalued the concept of church membership or a church covenant. Many of us who were raised in a uh, what I would call... Uh, this is my church culture, have gone to the other extreme of planting our feet nowhere. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we know people who were uh, raised in a church. They've been there their whole life. And for them, regardless of what's coming from the pulpit, regardless of what's happening, the place could be on fire. You, however you want to think of that theologically, rainbow flags everywhere or whatever. And they're not leaving because this is my church. We, we know people like that. This is my church. I just don't leave. Okay, that's, that's, that's one extreme. The other extreme is what, what is really prevalent nowadays that pretty much every Reformed conference where there's a Q&A panel, one of the first questions is asked or answered is, how do I know when to leave my church? I learned the five points of Calvinism two weeks ago. When do I leave my church? Well, oh, slow down here. That's not how we should think about church and church membership. We, we, we have to balance these extremes. I'm not saying there's never a time to stay and there's never a time to leave. I'm just saying we, we, we find ourselves in going from extreme to extreme. A lot of people see a church covenant about the same as gym membership. I signed up. I can cancel whenever I... Whenever I want to, if I'm not going, why would I, why would I hold up my membership or anything um, that they don't like happens? Well, I'll just cancel it. I signed up for it. I'll cancel it. Most of us here are not in any of these categories, probably. But 
Um, if I ask the question, when was the last time you read through our church covenant to be reminded of the things you agreed, most of us would probably have to say it's been a while. Well, that could be evidence that in your mind even uh, you've begun to devalue the concept of church membership and church covenant. What, what exactly did I agree to do? Well, in order to begin to address that kind of stuff, we have to start at the beginning with a concept that Keach and those who've gone before us would have simply assumed, and that is the matter of church membership. If, if there is no such thing as church membership, if it, if it really is just something that we made up to, to bind people uh, to a particular church and try to get their, their tithe dollars out of them, well then, of course, there's no reason to enforce it, no reason to hold people to it. It wouldn't be that important. But if it is biblical, if we can prove these ideas from Scripture, well, all of a sudden we've, we've got a little, bit of, a little bit stronger of a hold, I would think, at least upon the conscience of, of a Christian. And so what I want to do this evening, with uh, nowhere near enough time uh, remaining, is to, well, we have until midnight, right? We're doing the uh, all-night all night vigil. So we have until midnight. Um, I want to try to make a case, a biblical case, for church membership. And I have just two headings, church membership defined and church membership defended. So I'm going to move fast. Number one, church membership defined. Before we can defend our notion of church membership, we must first define our terminology. So here's what I mean by church membership. The formal, covenantal, voluntary submission of oneself to the doctrine, members, and leadership of a particular church in order to carry out the worship and discipline instituted by Christ for His people. Church membership. The formal, covenantal, and voluntary submission of oneself to the doctrine, members, and leadership of a particular church in order to carry out the worship and discipline instituted by Christ for His people. Now let me break that down. Church membership, I would argue, from a biblical perspective, is first formal, which means it's officially sanctioned and recognized. Church membership is not you in your mind saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm a member of that church. I mean, I've been going there for a while. I'm pretty sure I'm a member. Um, nor is it the church saying, well, they've been coming for six months. I guess they're basically a member. Well, do they know that they're a member? I don't know. Oh, that's not what we're saying. That's not church membership. To, for something to be formal, what we mean is that there is a joining of oneself to that body according to a public uh, process that is clear and agreed upon by all so that a, a person obviously goes from not a member to a member and everybody knows that that has happened. It's formal. Secondly, it's covenantal. A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons which includes precepts privileges, and penalties for those involved. So covenantal membership therefore means that those joining the church understand and agree to the requirements of membership, they receive the privileges associated with that membership, and they are also subject to the penalties that come if they fail to uphold their end of the covenantal agreement. So it's, it's covenantal. It has those different things, precepts, privileges, and penalties. Church membership is also voluntary. 
which means it's not coerced in any way. It's acted freely. It's acted willingly. Uh, no, no one is forced by birth to be a member of the church. No one is forced by citizenship or law to become a member of a church. A person, a Christian, comes and voluntarily brings themselves or submits themselves to the membership of a church. Now, what do I mean by the submission of oneself? Well, that, that means to bring oneself under the guidance and care of another. So to be a church member means that you voluntarily bring yourself under the guidance and care, or we could say the oversight and discipline of a particular church. It's not coming in to be over the church. So we're not saying you join the church because you want to come in and help them correct everything. No, to join a church... To be a church member means you have submitted yourself to be under the guidance and care of that church. And, and I will say at this point, this goes for all of the members. This, this is not, well, you have the elders, they're not under anybody. No, the elders are members and have submitted themselves to the guidance and care of the church just like everybody else. Now that might look different in some scenarios and there might be places where the particular... Uh, Duties of the office applies differently in their situation, but that doesn't mean that they're anything more or less than church members. Submission to uh, of oneself, and then that submission carries itself out in, in three areas. Doctrine, the teaching that is to be believed, the instructions that are to be followed. So church membership means you bring yourself under the tutelage of sound doctrine, and particularly the uh, the doctrinal standards of that congregation. So to, to become a church member, you would want to know, well, what do you believe? And, and do, can I in good conscience submit myself to those doctrinal standards? It also means submitting oneself to the members of that church. That is everybody else who's joined by the same covenant to the same body. So church membership means bringing yourself under the care and watchful eye of everybody else in that church, but it also means you are giving yourself to the responsibility of caring and watching for the souls of those people. You, you submit yourself to the concept of being a member, an active member in the body. And then there is submission to the leadership. And by that I mean biblically qualified, recognized officers of the church in as much as they act in that capacity according to the Word of God. So, to, to be a church member does not mean that you have to submit to self-proclaimed leaders in the church. Well, I, I just am, just do what I say. No, that's, that's not biblical leadership. It doesn't mean that you are agreeing to submit yourself to the leaders of other churches or every church. Members are not required to submit to leadership outside of the office that they bear. So, if, if you buy... Uh, a dodge, I can't come to your house and say, now listen, we're, we're a Ford church here. And you, I, you would say, who are you to tell me what kind of car I can buy? And you could say, get back in your lane. That, that's, not a part of your, that's not a part of my leadership. And members are not expected to submit to leadership that's contrary to the Word of God. So a, a, a church leader can't say, well, I don't have Bible for this, just do what I say. You say, well, until you got Bible, and I don't have to do what you say. But at the same time, all of that being said, church officers do have a real biblical authority and rule 
in a particular lane using particular tools. And to become a member of the church means you submit yourself to that leadership in that capacity according to the Word of God. And all of this plays itself out in a particular church. A congregation of specific people covenanted to one another to the exclusion of other churches. To be a a member of this church means you are by definition not a member of another church. And all of these obligations you have here, but you don't have anywhere else. Church membership implies obligations towards a certain group of people that you don't have towards another group of people. It's that church to the exclusion of all others. So church membership is the formal, covenantal, and voluntary submission of oneself to the doctrine, members, and leadership of a particular church, and all of that in order to carry out the worship and discipline instituted by Christ for His people. Number two, church membership defended. I've got to defend all of that to some extent. I'm arguing that church membership defined as I just have is defensible according to Scripture. Now before we go into this, I want to say that first... To make this case, we have to understand that it is a cumulative case. I don't have a verse that I can go to that says, you must submit yourself to or or bring yourself into formal covenantal voluntary submission to oneself, of oneself in doctrine, et cetera, et cetera. There's no text that says that. There's not even a Bible verse that says you must be a member of a church. Um, And also, that's not how we prove and defend many things in the Christian faith by a, a chapter and verse dealing. That's it's, it's a, really a bad way to do theology. Is, is, well, I have this one text that applies and seems to teach this if I separate it from everything else around it and just look at that one. That's, that's not a good way to study. So there, there's no single text that states this. It's cumulative. And what I mean by that is, is we, we see a, a collection, as we read the New Testament, a collection of analogies, Statements, activities, commands, and processes, all which necessitate what we call church membership. They, they probably wouldn't have used those terms. We call it church membership. And, and I would argue that, that without church membership, the New Testament begins to become nonsensical. So then, uh, first we have the analogies used by the Holy Spirit. I would begin to defend church membership by referring you to the analogies or metaphors that the Holy Spirit uses to illustrate the church. You don't have to turn to these, but you know them well, versus that of a household or a family. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, The household of God, which is the church of the living God. Well, think of a household, your household. Are you confused about who is in your household, who's not in your household? Is there typically very much confusion at your house? about who are the brothers, who are the sisters, who is the mom, who is the dad? Do we not all work hard to make rules and obligations and responsibilities clear in our homes? We say things like, in our house, we don't do that. Or here, we do that. Well, I can't go to somebody else's house and say that, but in our household, those things are clear. Aren't, are there not formal and recognized ways that people enter into become a member of a household like birth or adoption. There, there is a moment when a person is a part of that household. Um, 
And whether you want to say that's at conception or birth or adoption, there's no confusion. You don't have random people coming in and out of your in and out of your house, looking in your cabinets, getting food, and you're like, "Hey, are you a member of this household? Because I don't know you. You look like a stranger." That's not normal. If that's happening, you got a problem, right? And, and so it is with the church, which is the household of God. The church is called a body. First Corinthians twelve twenty seven. You are the body of Christ, and individually, members of it. Do you know which parts, which body parts are yours and which aren't? I hope that you do. I hope that there's no confusion there. If a ball, if someone throws a ball and it's headed for your face, do you wait for someone else's hand to block your face or do you expect, assume, that's kind of on you to use your hand to block your face? I think that you do. If you're hungry, do you wait for someone else's brain to tell your feet when to go in the kitchen? No, you don't. You say, I've got my own brain, my own feet. My body parts work with my body. With our bodies, there's no confusion but perfect clarity about which parts go with which body, and each of us uses our own body parts to carry out the necessary functions of life. So it is with the church. There ought to be no confusion as to who is a member of what body. The church is called God's field. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Is a farmer unclear about where his field stops or starts? Are there not definable boundaries to the field? If I'm in one man's field, am I also in another man's field who has a field very far away? No, that can't, that's not possible. When it's time to cut hay, does the farmer just start, just pull off the road somewhere at a random place and start cutting and hope that he gets gets into his property at some point? No. Are there any farmers who somehow work fields all over the world and yet actually work no particular field? Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. So it is with the church, which is God's field. The the church is also called a building in that same verse. You are God's field, God's building. Well, we're all aware of where this building starts and stops. We know what it means to be inside this building versus outside of this building. If there was a roof leak here and someone came to fix the roof, would he be able to tell where to work? Or would he just start on the roof across the street and hope that eventually some of the shingles would be on this roof as well? No, he would know that that building is there. I'll start here and go to there, and I'll have this roof covered. You see, it's, it's pretty clear, and none of us had any trouble figuring out which doors opened the way into this building. I don't think anybody went to the house across the street and opened the door thinking that they would come into this building, right? We know that door, and that door comes into this building. It's clear. And nobody's confused here about who's inside this building versus who's outside, the church is referred to as a temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple? 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Or were there not strict rules for who could go in and who could not go into God's temple? Was God not clear about what was to take place in the temple? Would the stones not have to come together and be fitted together in a certain way to build a structure known as the temple? Of course, and so it is with the church. You see, if we just stop and think about these pictures, we begin to see why the concepts of formal agreements, definable boundaries and obligations, and specific commitments are just natural. If we're going to walk together, there has to be some sort of agreement, some sort of 
fitting together. And these kinds of things, especially when conducted with a congregation of people, require church membership. We can add to those images the various descriptions given by the Holy Spirit of the activities of the earliest Christians. And it's here that this notion of formal covenanted membership begins to take place. If you've got your Bible still there open to Acts 2, we'll start there and we're going to work our way through the New Testament. A lot of these I've tried to keep in order so that the, the turning goes quickly. Acts 2, 41 and 42, we read the text earlier, but we see there that immediately upon following upon their conversion, all these people that hear the gospel, what must, what must be do to be saved, they're converted, they're baptized, what immediately happens? It's not that they came out of the water and then just wandered off into various places in the world. No, they immediately were added, that is to the church, and they devoted themselves to certain things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship. That's not just they thought it would be cool to hang around. They're all dripping wet. We just got baptized. How did you feel? It was cold. I was cold too. The fellowship is a very specific Christian koinonia communion between the saints. The breaking of bread, which I believe is the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, stated times of prayer. But notice also that they counted these people. They added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, that was probably not a quick count. It would have taken a while. But there was some sort of record kept as to who was going into the water and who was coming out. They were counting. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. says, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So they're still counting. Their records are being kept. Acts chapter 5, verse 13 it says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. That word join means to establish a relationship with someone, to unite or to cling to or to be glued to someone. So no one besides the Christians dared to try to enter into this relationship which was common amongst the believers. They were joined. Other people dared not join them. They had a relationship that was off limits to outsiders. Look at Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 30. This is speaking of the Apostle Paul. And when he had come to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples. Same word that we just saw. He wanted to come into that relationship. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So we see the Apostle Paul, he, he didn't say, well, I'm, I'm an apostle, I'm going to do my own thing. No, he came into Jerusalem and said, I want to I join up with you guys. But notice, they would not accept him until Barnabas came along and gave a testimony about his character. Here's what happened, here's what I've seen. He's cool, guys. 
Then he was allowed to come and go amongst them. Acts 14.27 says, And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, or and gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Well, how did they know who to gather? They gathered the church. Was that a definable group? I, I assume that it was. How did the church know that it was them who was being gathered? Did they, did they say some random stranger came and poked me on the shoulder and said, we're going to have a meeting over here with these guys? Well, no, they knew that they were a part of this group. There was a clear understanding of who was in and who was out, who was to be invited, who was not to be invited. Acts 15 verse 22 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So we have another reference to the whole church. They had to know who that was. Men were chosen from among them, that is from among that group, the church, and then those men were sent with Paul and Barnabas. And the implication seems to be that Paul and Barnabas were not among the church of Jerusalem anymore. He started with them, then he was sent off and ended up in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were members of the church in Antioch, that was their home church. So there was these, these differentiations between the groups and who was a part of which group. In verse 30 of, of that chapter, it says, So that when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Again, who was the congregation? They knew who these people were who was going to be gathered. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12, with me. When we leave the book of Acts, we see many commands. This, this won't be exhaustive, but, but commands, which if we just think about them for a minute, we realize they necessitate something like local church membership. Acts, or Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Well, how do we know who's rejoicing and who's weeping if there's not close contact and community amongst the people? Are we expected, according to this verse, to rejoice or weep with an unknown, undefinable body? And, and if you fail to rejoice with someone on the other side of the world who's rejoicing, well, then you've sinned because Paul said rejoice with those who rejoice. No, we assume that there, there are people that we know and are in close contact with. Now, does this mean you never rejoice or weep with someone outside of your church? No, that can be true in addition to this. But the assumption is that there will be people that you are in close contact with that you know when they're rejoicing and their rejoicing causes you to rejoice. And you know when they're weeping and their weeping causes you to weep. 1 Corinthians 11. The passage concerning the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Well, how do we know who to wait for at the Lord's Supper? Paul said, "Wait, we can't. Don't don't pass out the elements yet. Somebody might walk in. No, they knew who the church was, who was coming together, who was to be admitted to the table, and who wasn't to be admitted." In verse eighteen of that chapter says, "When you come together as a church, a singular church 
coming together. we got to know who that is so that then those people can partake of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? Here we have the whole church. And now these other two groups, the outsiders and unbelievers. Now we know what an unbeliever is. What is an outsider? This term is defined as someone who is excluded, uninitiated, or untrained in the ways of a certain group. So you have the whole church, then you have the outsiders, those uninitiated and untrained. Well, what is the implication except that those in the church are people who are included, initiated, and trained in the ways of conduct of that church while outsiders are not. You see, when you again, when you just begin to contemplate, read the text, but think, how did this work? What does, what does this require to be happening? You contemplate this community, the church, that was in existence, and the way that it functioned. You begin to see that formal covenantal membership would have been understood among them as I said earlier, is, is it would be in every body politic, that is a people, nation, the people of a nation, state, or society considered collectively as an organized group. And you'll, you'll read old writers, they'll use the phrase body politic to describe this institution called the church as, as a collective group. Uh, next, we see structures set up by the Holy Spirit. And I think this might be more conclusive than everything we've seen before. There's a clear structure of responsibility, leadership, and discipline uh, that when we put all of this together, this begins to give a real form to what we call the church and church membership. Turn back to Matthew chapter 18 and we'll work through the New Testament again. And this may be the last time I tell you to turn and I'll just fly through the rest of these on my own and you can write them down. Um, these, these points give a structure to the church that could not exist apart from church membership. Matthew 18, 17, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, we would ask, who's the church? They'd have to know who that group of people is. <coughs> who do we go and tell about this guy who's sinning, but he won't listen? We just go find a random Christian at the store? No. There, there's a known body here. How are these people related to this offending man? And how is he related to them? Why are these parties associated with one another? Why, why do these people care about what this man is doing? And why is what this man is doing, why does it affect these people? It's implied here that the church is to communicate with this man. If he does not listen to the church, well, that implies that they know him, that they can contact him. It implies that there are agreed upon standards of morality and that this man is accountable to these people. If they don't listen to, or if he doesn't listen to them, they now have authority to remove him. Well, that doesn't make any sense if they haven't already agreed. Brother, if you don't, agree, if you don't uh, meet your uh, end of the covenant, you're out. Again, that's assumed. And... Again, again, this assumes that the church has the authority to remove this man from its number. It has the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, Luke describes the very first diaconal responsibilities of the early church. 
Acts 6, 1, Now in, those, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we have the widows of the church, not every widow of the land, surely, the widows of the church. There was a daily distribution which implies some sort of record as to which widows are supposed to get what and when. And this also implies a church obligation to those widows. And these widows clearly expected care from their church. All of this has been organized prior to this. We're just coming in on the problem that was set up because of what we call church membership. And the apostles said in Acts 6.3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So these seven men were to be chosen from a definable pool of men. Their reputation was known to the church. The apostles had the right to say, do this. These men had to say, okay, we'll do it. There were leaders and there were those who were being led. Ministers of the word and prayer and those who served tables. There were those who needed to be served and those obligated to serve them, all in the very first church. Um... I'm going to skip a few of these texts that you could write down. Acts 14, 23. Acts 20 as Paul deals with the Ephesian elders. We've seen 1 Corinthians 5 and the, the disciplinary actions that take place there. And Paul says, what have we to do with judging outsiders? They're outsiders and those in, they're insiders. Well, what makes them outsiders? Well, they've not submitted to the teaching of the church. They've not agreed to come in, so we don't have the right to kick them out. But once they agree to come in, now the church has the right to purge them if they continue in sin. Um, 1 Timothy 5 uh, deals with uh, the elders who are worthy of double honor. Well, is is a singular church expected to uh, honor every elder in in the land? I don't think that's... uh, I think we understand that wouldn't be the case. Is a particular elder just to sit and hope that maybe a church out there somewhere will take up his concerns? No, it's assumed... A church and its elders go together. The church has standards as to uh, what laboring and preaching means, what it means to rule well. And this implies a special standing commitment-based relationship between the church members and their elders. And that works both ways. We see in, in 1 Timothy 5.20, uh, speaking of the elders as, those, as for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. So the church has the obligation to publicly rebuke sinning elders in the presence of all, not all the world, but all the congregation in a public assembly. Hebrews 3.7, remember your leaders who are our leaders. Hebrews 3.17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Who, Who are your leaders? Over whose souls will these men keep watch? It says as those who will have to give an account. Will will your elders give an account for every Christian in in town, in the community, in the state? I hope not. But we will give an account for every soul in the membership of the church because they were under our care. James 5.14 Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Is, Is this... The elders of every church, of any church, look in the phone book, find a church, call a pastor. No. The elders of the church. The elders of a particular church have an obligation to the sick in this scenario. And the sick have an obligation to call upon their elders. 
Well, I don't want to bother them. It's their job. And we'll see this as we move through this work to call upon your elders when you need to, when you should. Peter talks about the elders among you. I exhort the elders among you. And then he says the younger should be subject to the elders, assuming this relationship in the church between those who lead and those who follow. We did not take the time to go into the history of Israel as a type of the church or the synagogue system which was established even before the time of Christ. This was just a small sampling of the biblical data. But I'm sure that if you sat with a Bible, if you put these lenses on, you begin to think, okay, how, how do I... We have to be careful here. We don't want to add to Scripture, but how do I read the Scripture and see what's there and also understand what's implied that might not be stated on the surface? If you begin to read and think in these terms you would be able to see far more evidence for this. You would, you, it, it begins to leap out from the page. As for me, the evidence from Scripture and history is simply undeniable. The New Testament simply makes no sense apart from the formal, covenantal, and voluntary submission of each Christian to the doctrine, membership, and leadership of a particular church in order to carry out the worship and discipline instituted by Christ for His people, that is what we call church membership. The gathering of the saints into covenanted bodies or local churches, says John Owen. I found this, it's one of those statements where you say, you think, I think you might have went too far. But listen to what he says. He says, this gathering of the saints into local churches was, quote, was invariably and inviolably observed by all that took on them to be His disciples without any one instance of questioning it to the contrary in the whole world. Go to the Scriptures and show me the disciple of Christ who said, Join with the saints. What? I'm not doing that. I, I, I've got my Bible and the Holy Spirit. I'll be fine. He said, you won't find it. Invariably, there was no variation. No, inviolably, nobody pushed against it. In the whole world, nobody even questioned it. That's what he says. And so when, when Keach says, and here I'm finished, when, when admitted as members before the church, they must solemnly enter into a covenant to walk in the fellowship of that particular congregation and submit themselves to the care and discipline thereof and to walk faithfully with God in all His holy ordinances and there to be fed and have communion and worship God there when the church meets if possible and give themselves up to the watch and charge of the pastor and ministry thereof. That's that paragraph. When he says that, we ought to recognize that he simply articulated what the Scriptures assume throughout Formal, covenantal, voluntary church membership. So now the next time you hear somebody who says, well, I don't see church membership in the Bible, you could say, I don't see the Bible making sense apart from it. Anyway, let's close in prayer.